So there was this young boy, and growing up in his younger years, his family moved around quite a bit. But he didn't complain much. He, uh, he had a couple younger brothers that didn't really like him too much. He never really connected to a, a group of friends, that clique of friends, those best friends that a lot of us grew up with having. Wasn't much to look at, didn't have much of a stature, wasn't a real handsome guy. Wasn't really good in sports, never joined a baseball team or a football team, wasn't asked to join one. But what he was good at is he was very smart, he was full of wisdom, super smart, super polite to people. He never went off with the, you know, the other boys doing those mischievous things, right, getting into trouble. He was always on the straight and narrow And because of this, because he was so smart, because he was so polite and always doing the right thing, he was considered a bit of an outcast. He was kind of rejected by his peers and considered an outcast, almost like a loner growing up. Well, as a follower of Christ, we're called to stand out. We're called to be different. We're called to exhibit the characteristics of Christ we're called to be an outcast for Christ. And we're going to look this morning at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel. And here Jesus teaches us the characteristics of a Christian, what a Christian walk should look like. And you'll find as we go through this, it's nothing new. It's always what God thought, right? We go back to Leviticus 19, verse 2. The Lord said, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God always intended for his people to be different, to carry themselves different, to stand out in the world. And when a person's heart is right with God, that's when we please God. And I was, as I was going through this this uh, piece of scripture and preparing the, the one, the main truth that I got out of it, the, the aim that I hope to bring to you to understand as we go through this is to understand that followers of Christ influence the world for Christ as they exhibit his character. So that's our job. As I, as I prayed, we are ambassadors for Christ. So as we are followers of Christ, we, we are to influence the world for Christ. And Jesus says this right after these 12 verses. Jesus explains what, what my main truth of this scripture is. He says in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, the salt can't be restored. He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. What Jesus is saying here is, and we we talked about this in men's group a couple weeks ago. We actually had a little illustration. We had little salt packets. And we, as Christians, sometimes get in our safe spot. Anybody in here probably would stand up and say, I love Jesus. Or at home, when we're in our homes, it's easy to pray and call yourself a Christian and read the Bible with your family. But what Jesus is saying, he teaches us these characteristics in the Beatitudes, but then he says, go out in the world. Be the salt of the earth. Preserve my earth. Bring that taste to the earth. He goes on to say, you're the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So Jesus gives us these teachings here, these blessings, these beatitudes, but he says, go out, be different. And I think too often as Christians... We just mingle in with the world. And we're learning about this in our study of of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Just in chapter 4, I I think it was explained uh, perfectly. Paul, starting at verse 10, he's, he's trying to tell the Corinthians, this new church, this raw church, as pastor calls it, that there's no difference in you when you weren't a Christian than there is now. He's being sarcastic here, remember. He says... We are fools for Christ, talking about him and and Cephas, Peter, and, and Apollos. But you are so wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. And when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Again, what Paul was saying is, we're different. And Paul and, the, and, and Peter, and, and, and they were taking on these characteristics of Christ, and they stood out. He talks about, again, when, when, we're, when we're slandered, we bless We're different than what the world is. And he was trying to tell that church in Corinth, you're no different than the world. A person can't tell you're a Christian other than the fact that you go to church on Sunday. So in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, again, it's the beginning of Christ's ministry. He was just baptized by John the Baptist. He's introduced as the Messiah, saying that the kingdom of God is coming. And he brings these nine blessings, eight of which we call the Beatitudes. And then 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12 is followed by a a sort of a benediction, an assurance. And it's about the persecution you're going to get when you follow these characteristics, when you take on these characteristics and go out in the world. And he brings this happiness, these blessed things. And it's, it's not a happiness that is just a a short-term emotional state, right, that we, we feel for a day or two. This blessedness Jesus brings is, it's a condition of your life. It's the eternal condition of one's life. It, this blessedness even describes God himself. It, it talks about God being blessed in Psalm 72. 72, 18 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Psalm 119, 12 says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. 1 Timothy 6, 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign king, the king of kings, lord of lords. So this blessedness that Jesus brings. It is more than just the flippant way that sometimes the world uses blessed. Someone sneezes and they say, God bless you. Have a blessed day. No, this blessedness is an eternal state that Jesus puts upon you when you take on these characteristics. 
And we look in contrast to the Old Testament. How many of you realize the Old Testament ends with a curse? Malachi 4 ends with a curse. And here Jesus coming in, starting his ministry, brings these blessings. We look at the first Adam and the the first covenant of works he failed with. And there was curses all through the Old Testament. Then came the, the Mosaic Law. And to this time when Jesus brings the message, the the people are trying to live up to and do these works living up to this law. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm not coming to abolish that. I'm going to fulfill that. But I'm bringing you a new way. And it's away from the heart is what he teaches here. We've got to change our hearts in order to please God. And you'll have this eternal happiness, not a curse. So the second Adam, Jesus... He's tempted like the first Adam, but he succeeds. And he's given the law, but he abides by it. The problem is the message that Jesus brings here, he's talking about being poor and mourning and being meek and peacemakers and merciful. The world then sees it as being upside down of what worldly values are. And and even today, people don't see this as as being what, what a winner really is. And what truly being blessed in the world's eyes is. So our title again is Outcast for Christ. And we're going to go through the whole scripture. And then I'm going to break it up into, into two different parts. We'll look at the first four Beatitudes first. Verses 1 through 6. And I call that piece a pure heart. And then we'll look at verses 7 through 12. The second four Beatitudes and calling that the fruit of a pure heart. And again, keeping in mind, I want to I drive the point that came to me as I studied this, is to, to understand that followers of Christ influence the world for Christ as we exhibit his character. That's what I want to get out of, this, uh, out of this lesson that we're going to go through this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. And you'll find it in the Pew Bibles on page 809. And let's read God's word. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
This is the word of God. So a pure heart, the first four Beatitudes. It says he sees the crowds, he goes up on the side of the mountain. He sits down and he opens his mouth, it says, to speak to them. That makes sense, right? But his first blessing, he says, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, I could imagine some of the people listening to this, right, thinking poor in spirit, right? Some of the, maybe there's some of the Pharisees and Sadducees sitting out there, or, or even maybe a Roman or two looking from a distance, listening to this. This is, this is the Messiah talking about being poor in spirit. That's how you're going to be blessed. And what does Jesus mean by this, poor in spirit? Well, it's the foundation of what Jesus says happiness is going to be, how your heart's going to be right with God. And, and when, as we go through these Beatitudes, you're going to see how they all kind of link together. One leads to the next. But being poor in spirit means humbling yourself, right? Realizing that anything you have, you have as a gift from God. Any gifts, any talents you have is only because of God. So when you stand before the holy God, the only thing we bring to him is a life full of sin. We have nothing to offer God in our salvation. So standing before God, poor in spirit means we have nothing to offer. And for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise that comes with it. And again, nothing new that Jesus is bringing. If we look to Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. God is saying he's with the lowly heart, the lowly in spirit, the poor in spirit. So this is a promise that when we come to God, empty-handed, knowing that we have nothing to offer, God is with us. And when we get to that state, and we understand that, it's natural to go to the second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we realize our our state, when we realize the fact that we have nothing to offer God and all we have is this sinful life, we're going to mourn, right? We see our inability to become right with God on our own. We mourn. We see the perfect, perfect world God made and what sin has done to that world. We would mourn. And Jesus says, and you will be comforted. So we go to God in this... In this mournful way, crying the fact that we, we are so sinful. And he says, I will comfort you. Again, nothing new. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. So we come to God poor in spirit. We mourn. We're comforted by God. And then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Again, nothing new. Proverbs, or I'm sorry, Psalms 37.11 says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This isn't a new message Jesus is bringing. What Jesus is saying is we need to empty ourselves of ourselves, become meek, clear ourselves of, of all, all, all pride we might have, and you hear this word meek, and right away you think of weak or timid or shy. And we, we could look to Moses. Moses was called, called the meekest man on earth. Numbers 12, I didn't put it down. Numbers 12, Second Corinthians 10, Jesus was called meek. I wouldn't call these guys weak or timid or shy. What meek means is we're under the submission, the control of God. An illustration I once heard was a a wild horse. A wild horse, large in stature, very powerful, but you go near that wild horse and it could be dangerous. Or take a wild sinner. A wild sinner could be dangerous to go near. But the trainer come to that wild horse and break that wild horse, train him, that wild horse is still a powerful animal. But it's under the submission, the control of the trainer. The same with that wild sinner. That wild sinner that was once dangerous becomes meek under the submission, the control of God. That's what Jesus is calling us to do when he calls us to be meek. Become under the submission of God. What God needs is people under his control. Not doing it our way. Not being a Christian our way. So we come to him poor in spirit. Nothing to offer you, God. We mourn over it. He comforts us. We become meek under the submission of God. And now we're a different person. That wild sinner that we saw crawling around that was dangerous is now a new man, a new woman. And we like it. We're hungering and thirsting for more. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So again, we empty ourselves of our old self. We're, we're, we're creating a new person, born again. And we're hungering and thirsting. We want more of this. And he says, you will be filled. He's going to give us more, and we're going to strive for it. This becomes the most important thing in our life, this righteousness with God. Because we become, we become under the understanding that Nothing else is important is becoming right with God. And Jesus says, I will fill you. I'll give you more. I'll give you more. So in these first four Beatitudes, a truth that kind of connects with that main truth I got through the whole thing was a Christian must become something before they can do something for God. We got to be a different person that... Wild, crazy sinner that I once was must empty myself of all pride and understand that I have nothing to offer God and only he can bring me righteousness through Jesus. Become submissive to him. So I must become somebody else, something else, before I can do anything for God. But he talks about being poor, mourning, meek, Hungering for righteousness, it sounds upside down, but this is what Jesus promises. This is how I will be blessed. 
So I ask myself, how do I get there? Right? And we're never going to get there in this life. But we should always be striving to. And I want to make clear, this is not the way to salvation. By doing these things. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus. But once we are saved, we'll go through the process of sanctification. And this is how we work on, on becoming more like Christ. Right? On, on, on establishing that followers of Christ influence the world for Christ. Right? As we exhibit his character. So how do I get there? I, I put three points here. I put, number one, look to God always. And what I mean by this is, study the Bible. And, and I don't just mean read it. Don't just read it every day, but study it. And that's how I learn more about God. I, I study a piece of scripture. And I may be on that piece of scripture for a week or two. But always be in studying the Bible and join a Bible study. Always be studying the Bible. Make sure you're in fellowship with other Christians. And as I've heard from this pulpit many times, there's enough good sermons and good teaching audio and and YouTube things that we could turn off all this garbage that's on our radios and TV and be hearing good things, good teachings, good sermons about God. So look to God always. Put as much God in your life as you can. Number two, I put starve the flesh. And I meant by that, lose a sense of oneself. Lose a sense of myself. Do all I can do for God. No matter where where I'm going. If I'm going to work, in the morning when I pray before I go to work, God, give me an opportunity to bring you glory today when I go to work. Remember that I'm an ambassador for Christ when I go to work or when I go to the store. Be a Christian no matter where I go, but lose a sense of who I am and, and my pride and go out and be that that man for Christ. So lose a sense of myself and starve the flesh and, and do it all for God. And number three, how do I get there? I ask God. I pray for revelation. God, reveal to me how I, I still feel a sense of pride sometimes, God. I don't mourn for, for the fact that, that I, 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 I have nothing to offer. Sometimes I take advantage of the cross, God. I... I, I want you to reveal to me where I'm lost, God. You think of being poor in spirit. What do poor people do? They, they often beg. Beg God. Beg the Father to reveal to you where you need work. I'm making your heart right. And then I put a list of questions where I can evaluate myself. Because again, through this process of sanctification, we should see a change in our life as we go. It may not be a daily change, but we should be able to look back and see, see progression in ourselves if we're truly working on, on becoming a, more like Christ. So I ask myself questions like this. Do I find myself thinking of God and his glory more than myself and my agenda? Do I ever complain? Because I shouldn't complain about anything, because anything I have, I don't deserve anyway. How much time do I spend in prayer and giving thanks and praise to God? Do I always accept Christ on his terms? Do I experience perfect self-control? Do I only get angry when God is dishonored? 
And how well do I take criticism? Those are some things I can, I can look at and see where was I and where am I? And where do I want to go? On the second four, the second four are more of the, I call it the fruit. It all still comes from the heart, but when we get a right heart, we can now produce fruit for God, right? We can, we can now do it in a way that God accepts. And if you look at what the, what the people that were trying to, to please God under the law, these sacrifices and making laws to, you know, to, to try to please God, making their own laws, wasn't pleasing God and they were failing miserably. Well, for, if it comes from the heart, Jesus says, Then, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So when my heart's right with God, I can go show mercy to others. And again, here's a radical thing that, that comes to these people, show mercy to people. There was a Roman scholar, uh, Seneca, and he called mercy the disease of the soul. Mercy was not a thing that certainly the Romans saw as, as any value. The Pharisees didn't show mercy. But here's Jesus saying, go show mercy to people. And mercy will be blessed, you'll be blessed with mercy yourself. We look at a good example of mercy from Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan. And if you remember the Good Samaritan, there was a man, he was, he was robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road. And a priest comes by and he walks to the other side of the road and don't help him. A Levite comes by, does the same thing, goes to the other side. Passes the man up. A Samaritan man comes and he walks up to the man and he bandages up his wounds, pours some wine and oil on him, pays a man to help him at the end, says he'll come back and help him. And Jesus says, that's the man with mercy. That's what mercy is. He had no obligation to help him. He didn't do it for any selfish reason. That's what true mercy is. When we have nothing to gain out of it ourselves, but we go out and help somebody else because we see the need. Just because we see the need and the opportunity. Remember Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. That's what mercy is. When we see the opportunity, not when we see a gain for ourselves. So he says, blessed are you, the merciful, for you will be shown mercy as well. And then he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, pure in heart means we, we free ourselves of all selfish intentions. We live every moment to bring glory to God. Again, nothing new Jesus is teaching here. David says in Psalm 24, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to do what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from God for his salvation. Nothing new Jesus is teaching here. We start showing mercy to people for all unselfish reasons. We begin to have a pure heart. Remember Jesus told the Pharisees in, in Matthew twenty three twenty seven. he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them, for you are like whitewashed tombs, with a, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. Doing it on the outside, doing it for the wrong reasons. 
is like being a hypocrite. It does nothing for our souls. It does nothing for God. He says in Matthew 15, he talks about the Pharisees and how they're, how they're using religion, even, even spiting their family to use religion to, to, to benefit themselves. So a pure heart is, is completely unselfish. Next he says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, they will be called sons of God. So those who are now showing mercy, those with a pure heart, become peacemakers. Right? They bring peace to others. They come and Jesus came right first to make peace with us and the Father, to reconcile us to God, to bring us right with God. And then to bring us right with each other. And now he wants us to bring that peace to the world. He says, be peacemakers. Nothing new again. Proverbs 12.20 says, Deceit in the heart of those who will, will devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Deceit is in the heart, I should say, of those who, who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. So what it's saying here is plan peace. Plan peace. What will promote peace? Plan it. Sometimes we walk away from a situation because we don't have to get involved. Or just let it go. But what Jesus is saying, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. If you can make peace, come up with a plan. You're under the submission of God. Pray to God, how can I make peace of this? Hebrews 12.14 says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Make a plan. Strive for peace. Become peacemakers. Then Jesus says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here's the part that might make people step back a little. Wait, blessed am I when I'm persecuted? Yeah, the world's going to probably persecute you. In fact, Jesus says they will in John 15. He says they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Peter advises whoever is made to suffer as a Christian should, should not be ashamed, but glorify God because of the name in 1 Peter 4.16. Nearly all the apostles were martyred because of the name of Christ. And so many between the first century and today were martyred because of the name of Christ. But Jesus says, if you're persecuted for my sake, you will see heaven. He wants us to be a Christian all the time, not just Sunday at church or in our homes or in our safe places. And he goes on to assure us of, of his blessing and his protection here in verses 11 12. He says, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You notice he says when. So if you do these things, you're going to suffer some persecution. But he says blessed are you. And he says rejoice, be glad, for the reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. So it's going to happen if we trust in Jesus and we take on the characteristics that he calls us to. So and again, in the second piece here, the truth I got out of these second beatitudes, these second four, 
is that Christian fruit must look and taste like Jesus. Now, let me untangle this for you, because that looks a little, uh, a little different, to say the least, up there. But, but we have to, again, rid ourselves of ourselves, right? Like those first four Beatitudes, right? We, we're poor in spirit. We mourn. We become meek, submissive to God. So we completely empty ourselves. We hunger and thirst for more of God's righteousness. We begin to show mercy. You get it? Our old self is gone. So when we go out, we need to act and look like Jesus in a sense. So when we're doing these things, when we're making peace, when we're showing mercy, people will see Jesus. And then that truth of of knowing that followers of Christ influence the world for Christ as we exhibit his character. They're going to see Jesus at work. They're going to see God getting the glory, not you. So I think when's the last time I showed mercy to someone where I just did it out of having a pure heart and didn't think of what people are going to think or, boy, I'm going to get a pat on them. I'm going to look like a good guy for this or, or went and made peace. I could think of times I probably could have made peace where I walked away and said, this ain't none of my business. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its sharers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet, he was, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will, I will divide him a portion 
with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This boy I was talking about earlier was Jesus and we don't know all about his childhood. We know he didn't move around when he was born and we know he was an outcast. But Jesus is the one who bore our sins and and again making it clear that these beatitudes are not our way to salvation. No works are our way to salvation. What I just read there from Isaiah 53 What Jesus done is our way to salvation. When we understand that Jesus paid the price, we come to God poor in spirit with nothing to offer for our righteousness, nothing to offer for that promise to heaven, and understand that Jesus' blood is the only way, the only payment that can make it for us to get to heaven. And that his resurrection is the only way that we could be eternally in heaven with God. That's how we become a son and daughter of God. Through faith in Jesus and what he done on the cross. The Beatitudes are again our walk. How we can be blessed as a son and daughter with God. So I want to be clear that we don't confuse that this is the way to be a Christian. It's the way Christ calls us to be blessed as a Christian. Jesus on the cross, that's the first step. That's the important step of eternal, eternity with God. Without Jesus and his blood and faith in that, we're all damned to hell. Let's pray.